He is risen. Now I think no, it's not. That's good. Let's do it again. He is risen. There is no deliverance outside of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ has delivered you. Not only is he risen, hallelujah, but that means you are paid for. It means you are immortal now. It means that he soon will return to change what you see into what you know should be, including teaching you what ought to be better than you know now. He has given you a promise outside of you, water on your face to seal it. He's going to feed you again today with more of it by means of bread and wine. And that is the meaning of being church, church, congregation, to congregate, to come together, to assemble. What are we assembling around? Those true things, those true things. Today, I want to use St. Mark's ending, maybe, we can debate that, and Isaiah chapter 52 in its context to try to encourage you to see how these things mean that Jesus Christ is your comfort. Jesus Christ is your comfort. Easter 4 is about the comfort of Jesus in general because all the season of Easter is about Jesus giving you comfort to know that that day, which is coming, the one that St. Paul mentioned to Timothy, that he had the hope in, that that day is coming for you too. And that on that day, all the blindness, all the pride, all the internal turmoil, turmoil, all the toxic criticism within and without, all of that will evaporate, rolled up like a scroll, in the revolution that is your regeneration fully as a person made from the body of Jesus Christ. Right now, that's yours by faith. Right now, you have a mind that he has given you in the scriptures to live with now, and yet you know, as you try, you are weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so we fight and we struggle, but not for something we cannot see or hope in. Indeed, it's for something we know with conviction and certainty that it is coming. It is coming soon. And so even as empires tumble all around the world, even as congregations struggle to entice new members with their new measures, the churches which cling to the word and sacraments of Jesus Christ continue to walk forward filled with people who know that he is risen. He is risen. Hallelujah. Mark 16. Mark 16 has a problem. I didn't know there was a problem until I went to the seminary. And some might tell you it's what they teach you at the seminary that makes a lot of problems. And, you know, in some cases that might even be true. But in this case, I don't think what they did was dirty pool per se. It just kind of was, if you think of it in like a hazing sense. I had just gone through eight weeks of intensive Greek. Uh, I learned to read and translate Greek in eight weeks. It hurts to try to do that, is what I can tell you. But I had also gotten kind of good. Uh, over time, the discipline had put itself in, and I could read like a second grade level Greek. I was, I was getting there. And wouldn't you know, Mark 16 starts off right about that level. And so it made a lot of sense to me when it was an assignment to translate March 16, like right out of this, right? Like, okay, here we go, Mark. You know, he, this, that, this, that. I'm moving through the chapter, and it's all feeling pretty good. I'm very confident in my Greek at this point. And then I get to verse 9, and I had to stop and look something up 
And then I tried to keep going, and I needed a different book to look something else up in. And no matter what I did, I couldn't find the answer. So I moved on to the next verse, and it was tougher. And it almost felt like it was a different language. Which it might be if St. Mark's original ending stopped at 8, and then about 150 or 200 years later, someone else put on an ending that sounds a lot like Matthew and a bunch of other stuff from the rest of the New Testament in the Greek of the time. And the fact that there's another ending that's not in your English that's also there in this debate, a shorter second ending to Mark, wherein the Greek is even tougher and more like Shakespeare, so it's probably from even later, shows that somewhere in the world twice there were versions of Mark that ended at verse 8, and someone else said, it shouldn't end there, let's add something. Now, the only way that could not be true in one of these longer endings is the real ending, is if somewhere someone read the ending that was there and said, that doesn't make sense, cut that off. Or part of it got burned and no one knew what happened and all the copies we have came from there. Now, I think there are other features of Mark's gospel that make it reasonable for it to end, as we heard it a few moments ago, where the women run away scared in the darkness, uh, pre-dawn, right? They don't know what's going on. I think there's other reasons to believe this is Mark's intention. And uh, one of them is sort of a meta-narrative structure. Okay, so if, if you want to study film. It's, it's kind of like studying literature used to be. Maybe you'd rather study literature. Things they'll talk to you about in those areas of school are going to deal with plot and theme and the message that's behind the message. Well, the message that's behind Mark has a completely different agenda and feel than the message of, say, Matthew or Luke. And most people can tell this if they just sit down and read them straight through most people do not do that. Huh? Most people get what they know of it from church where we just pepper their readings through the liturgy throughout the year. And I can tell you what you get is Matthew with a little Luke, and then we'll like throw a ball at Mark once in a while. He feels bad over there. But what you never really get is a full experience of Mark. And so let me suggest to you, you try this sometime. Pick a Friday night when you got nothing going on, if you can find such a thing. And find a, a warm spot in your house, a cozy place to sit for an hour and a half or two. I really don't think it should take you too much longer. And read Mark from verse 1, 1 to 16, 8. And stop there. Don't read on. Stop there. And if you like cosmic horror, you know, Tutulu and all that kind of stuff, you're into that kind of sci-fi, that's the style he's writing in. It's dark. It's scary. Jesus is a bit nuts. Nobody understands him except the demons. They know who exactly who he is. And then there's this bit at the end with the soldier at the foot of the cross who stabs him dead. And Ben says, yep, that was the son of God. It's a strange story. So that by the end of it, when you have known, by the way, you know, Matthew and Luke and John, you have this information already in your head and you come to the end of Mark and you're reading along and you see these women run away. The whole point is it's not over. And that's where he leaves you. That's art right there. That's art. It's hard to do that. Right. And we come along because we're Christians and we trust that these other Christians who gave us these other texts. Well, what does that mean? I should say we trust. So we have a problem, though. I just pitched to you the good idea. Where about these other texts? What about 9 through whatever, and then 9 through 12? Here's my suggestion. I think many conservative scholars would agree with me on this. 
These other endings are commentaries on what the Christians who had the text at some point believed. And they indeed thought that something was missing. And so they amended it. And then later, a copy was made of that, and a copy was made of that, and many copies were made of those, so that we have a manuscript tradition today in which you have these varieties of endings. Now, I've gone a long way here without doing something I did right away at the last service. I feel bad about it. I wanted to introduce you to this entire topic by talking about textual criticism and variations in the Bible's text. That sounds super scary the moment I say it, right? Wait a minute, we've got a wrong ending to Mark. Maybe the Bible's wrong. That's what the the liberal critic would like you to think. So let me start off your introduction to textual criticism by saying that in the realm of knowing what people from long ago believed, the only way you know any of it is from pieces of paper we found or maybe some rocks that they scribbled stuff on. And most of the pieces of papers we have are copies of what was there, nothing is original because the oldest stuff wasn't written on paper that could last that long, and there's a whole history there. But if you enter into this field of trying to know what, say, Julius Caesar said, like what he really said because of the differences in all the copies that we have, or, or Plato, or Homer, or anybody else that people talk about, and like, oh, that guy existed for sure, the Bible by far exceeds them as the gold standard of the field by thousands and thousands and thousands of copies. No one can talk about the ancient world seriously if they don't talk about the Bible's text seriously. And then when you do that, when you have that large pool of copies, suddenly problems aren't problems because you can explain where they came from, from the many, many copies. So, for example, I've explained to you that we have an original Gospel of Mark that he wrote, that somewhere there's a bunch of copies of it, and in two places, somebody decides to add something to it. Now, our modern mentality says that's not allowed. You're not allowed to do that. You can't change the Bible. That's wrong. We're living with a mindset of the printing press that they just did not have. What they had was a text that they had received, maybe, imagine this, before any other text of the New Testament. You're a congregation, and you get yourself a copy of the Gospel of Mark. But you have a couple of people who have read this Gospel of Luke, and they've heard about this other book to Galatians, and they've, they've got pieces of that. They know the story, and it's our congregation, and we're alone in the middle of nowhere. Wouldn't we write down a few words? I think we would. I think we would. I don't think it's wrong to say then that got passed on and became the source of this tradition. The real thing to know is that when you go and you look at these small variations in our texts in the New Testament, these copy variations— The vast majority of them, 99.999% of them, are typos. They're misspellings. They're word order, getting switched around. Your eye drops a line and puts the wrong word in from the line below. They're that kind of thing. They're not hard to explain. And there are only two large problems, Mark 16, which I think I've explained pretty well, if you you like that one. Um, And then you have John 8. John 8 and the woman caught in adultery, let the one who is perfect cast the first stone. That... Um, that, uh, that text is one where there is a similar textual question or problem. I think most Lutheran pastors would say that John 8 is authentic, that it should stay there. I'm in the minority. I, I think it's an insertion. Uh, and it, it's not important, I think, whether you adopt any of these positions. This, this is really the point. So here we are with the disputed text. Mark chapter 16, 1 to 8, and 9 through the end, we're disputing. 
So let's say we need to decide something in life based upon the Bible. And one of the verses in Mark 16, 9 through 20 is something that talks about it, like whether you should pick up poisonous snakes to prove your faith, as some of the Baptists will teach in the hills down south. And you can look right there in Mark 16. It mentions you'll pick up poisonous snakes. My, oh, my. So what do you do when you have an, an information from this text that might or might not be original? You make sure you have other texts that also talk about it. You go to the rest of the Bible. You let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so Mark 16 just sits there as a wonderful potential truth, a commentary on what early Christians knew and remembered. What it sounds like is a little bit of a story told by someone who read Luke and Acts and wanted to put an addendum on Mark. It does not mean that Jesus has not been risen from the dead. He is risen. Hallelujah. The danger is that that kind of textual critical talk does get used by false shepherds in order to diminish your trust in the scriptures. It does get used by them to tell you the scriptures have errors in them. I pray you have heard me to saying today, there are no errors in the authentic word of God delivered from God by his prophets and apostles. In the copyist tradition, we do have errors, but we have the gold standard by every human reckoning of that tradition. And we can tell you 99.9% we got it. And the couple of big problems, they aren't big problems at all. They're just one more reason to talk about the text uh, to begin with. All right. So can I get an amen to move on to Isaiah? Amen. Isaiah chapter 52 is in the middle front of the early servant songs. The servant songs are a series of prophecies from Isaiah about the servant of Yahweh, the servant of Jesus, but it kind of is Jesus too, uh, the servant of God who will come in order to, and this is, this is so key to the whole idea, redeem Israel, redeem Israel. But by that, he means bring Judah back from Babylon to Jerusalem. The whole section and the whole idea of the servant of Yahweh is that he is the one who will bring Judah back to Jerusalem and build a temple there. Now, I hope you can see that's Jesus. But at the same time, Isaiah also names names. And he doesn't say his name will be Jesus. He says his name will be Churash or Cyrus in English, uh, the ruler of Persia who would not live for several hundred years or be named for several hundred years. And frankly, he as a ruler comes out of nowhere. Nobody expected Cyrus and the Persians. Before that, it was all about media, a country that barely gets mentioned anymore and only because Daniel mentions it. The history is a forgotten media. But media ran the area. Cyrus, the anointed of Yahweh, defeats Babylon and sends Judah back to Jerusalem. Now, the only problem with this is, of course, how on earth could Isaiah, 200 years before this guy Cyrus is born, or his peoples really exist, foretell his name? Clearly, this is an interposition by a later group who saw it happen and then wrote the name in, and that's the argument they'll give you at college, all right? They'll say it wasn't from a prophet, but later someone wrote the name in, and therefore you can't trust any of it. They use one of the greatest prophecies in the Bible to say you can't trust anything in the Bible. It's quite Amazing and diabolical, even. Uh, but hear this then. Isaiah, before the destruction of Jerusalem, prophesies not only it, but its restoration at the hands of a man named Churash or Cyrus. 
and that this Cyrus is the servant of God who will save his people, and that that picture is one more part of that great pattern that's been revolving since we fell, and God said, I'll send a son born of woman to crush the serpent's head. So this servant now is a new manifestation in time of that saving, pointing forward to its fullness in Jesus, the one man. And interestingly here, here's some emphasis about this servant from chapter 49. This servant is going to be one person, it says, one man. And this servant will claim a right over all the pagans, all the pagans. And that when this servant makes judgments, these judgments will be from God himself. Now, again, he says this about Cyrus, this guy who became one of the greatest pagan emperors in the ancient world. His name is as big as David's, if not bigger. And we can believe this is, in fact, true that God did this. He raised up this pagan king who may or may not have become a Christian through knowing Daniel as a counselor. But he raised up this pagan king for the sake of the church when they were at their lowest point in order to stop them from being destroyed by the leaders who ought to have been preaching them the truth. Remember that through all of this as well. This servant will also bring a new covenant. And in all of what I just said, I hope you can hear how much it is finally about Jesus. One man for the people claims a right over all the peoples. His judgments are God's judgments, and he bears a new covenant. From there, if you would find chapter 51, verse uh, verse 12, we're going to start there and get some of the context to lead into our actual text today. I think we should have plenty of time for that. Let's see here. Isaiah chapter 51, verse 12. So, Verses 12 through 17 of the previous section are God beginning to say to Israel, you're in exile because you put yourself in exile, and that means putting yourself in a place where I have to put you in exile. You're there now, and it's really bad. That's what's going on in the context. Verse 12 through 17, I'm going to read it. He says, then I, even I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die? And the son of man who will be made like grass? You forget the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. You have feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor when he has prepared to destroy But where is the fury of the oppressor? The captive exile hastens that he may be loosed, that he should not die in the pit, and that his bread should not fail. I am the Lord your God, who divided the sea, whose waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name, and I have put my words in your mouth. I have covered you with the shadow of my hand, and I have uh, that I may plant the heavens Lay the foundations of the earth and say to Zion, you are my people. Now, before this moment, I should have said this before I read it. It would have helped, I think. But before this moment, Isaiah and the servant speaking with him uh, back and forth with each other have called Judah in the name of Israel. They say, you are like, you as a group of people are like a drunken woman who is so intoxicated 
that she has stumbled out from the bar into the street and lies, kind of prostrate and spread, clothed, but drunken out in the street. That's you, Judah, he says. That's you who have just been taken captive or about to be taken captive, he says. But let me try to typologize this again. The way the Bible works is fractal. It's kind of a weird word. F-R-A-C-T-A-L. Fractal. It means there are big things that happen and they look like the small things that happen. The little tiny storms in your day are like the big storms in your life and they're like the big storms in history. They reflect each other. They're, They're fractal. God's description of Old Testament Israel then, whenever it happens, is like a couple things at the same time. It's like every family. It's like every individual soul. It's like every congregation. It's like every city. It's like every civilization. Every time what's going on to Israel as a whole happens, you can apply it across all those things. Well, let me try to do that just a touch here for you. There's going to be a time in your life when you feel like a drunk woman lying in the street. You might not be a drunk woman lying in the street, but part of you inside is going to feel like it. And you're not going to know what to do. And let me contest with you that what God says to Israel at this point is very valuable to you. Which is that you drank the cup he gave you. You drank the alcohol he gave you to make you drunk. Because you would not listen when you were thinking you were sober. Now, again, he says to that. You, lying in the street with the cup, I let you have. I'm your comfort. And I always have been. And I always will be. And that which you think has made you to lie in the street is but as a pittance to me. That I can remove it as far as the east is from the west. And so he begins to ask this question. And we may get into that a bit here with verses 17 to 23. He asks, Do you think... That I wanted to be wrathful? Do you think I really enjoy hurting you all? Were the thorns here before y'all did what you wanted to do? No, in fact, all these things come because you will not receive the good that I will give. But now that I've made you drink the cup of your own wrath so that you lie there prostrate in the street, now... The only thing left for me to do is give you good stuff because you can't go anywhere. You got to lie there and receive it. And I'm just going to promise you again and again that you are mine. Isaiah 51, 17 through 23, picking up. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. There is no one to guide her among all the sons she has brought forth, nor is there any who takes her by the hand among the sons she has brought up. These two things have come to you. Who will be sorry for you? Desolation and destruction, famine and sword. By whom should I send comfort? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of all the streets like an antelope in a net. That's a very interesting phrase there, by the way. You might think of a deer instead of an antelope, but if you've ever caught or seen an animal caught in a snare where they get trapped and they can't get away and they try and they begin to flip and flop and push and flam and every which way they're just trying to get away, 
until eventually they lie there exhausted on the ground. They just can't move. They're not, they're not dead, but the deer will let you walk up and slit its throat. That's what he says. You're like Jerusalem, rebellious people. Yeah. Um, they are full of the fury of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, please hear this, you afflicted. Right. So you're that bad, but listen to this, you who have been afflicted. Drunk, but not with wine, that is drunk with yourself. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. That is, he advocates for you. He's better than a lawyer. He advocates for you. He says, see, I have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, the dregs of the cup of my fury. You shall no longer drink it. And in the context, this means Judah is going back to Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. But in the big picture, this means Jesus is going to rise from the dead and save us from sin, death, and the devil. In the present, that means that today you may know that no matter what you see in this life, you are promised to walk with your head up and alive in Jesus until he comes. And that he will make each step more confident than the one before, even if the one before had to be the one that was a fall backwards. He will pick you up. He will push you forward because he is your God. I will put it into the hand of those who afflict you, he says, who have said to you, lie down that we may walk over you, and who have laid your body on the ground as the street for those who walk over you. What he means by that is he will turn away the affliction of your oppressors. How does that work in real life? Do you walk out today and your enemy at work's not your enemy at work tomorrow? No. It doesn't magically twinkle the other way around. The old word is mortification. You're going to walk out of here. You're going to be glad that he is risen. You're going to make some goals for yourself about doing this and that this week, and you're going to do it as a Christian. And then at some point in the week, it's not going to be the way you want it to be. And you are going to feel like you have not achieved what you ought to achieve just in this life. And by that perfect standard of legalism that you apply to yourself, you will begin to attack your own heart. And I am here again to remind you that that is the moment to open the Psalter. That is the moment to say, he is risen. It is the moment to remember that no matter how bad it gets, it will pass. And that passing just might be the unveiling of the resurrection in the next moment. So comfort each other with such words. Verse, verse 1 of 52 begins to get inspirational now, right? You're the drunk woman in the street. You're the one who can't manage your own life. You're the American country that's as godless as the day is long. Who is going to help you? And God says, you did it to yourself. I made you do it because you had to do it. But now all I got is resurrection to give you. Chapter 52, verse 1. Awake, awake, and put on your strength, O Zion, Put on the beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. Shake yourself from the dust. Arise, sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For you have sold yourself for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to dwell there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now, therefore, what have I here, says the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing? 
Those who rule over them make them wail, says the Lord. And my name is blasphemed continually every day. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, they shall know that in that day, to hear that, that day, that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. So for the prophecy of Isaiah and the people of Israel, the day they went back to Jerusalem at Cyrus's command with Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, this was fulfilled. And yet it's also fulfilled by Jesus enacting that salvation, not for this life, but for all eternity in the cross for you. And in that way, every time you face trial and tribulation from small to great in this world, you can remember that if you're down on the ground, beaten to a pulp, it's because you drank the wrath you deserved. And now God, who does not want to cast you away, but only to wake you up, says, now get up, Zion, be strong. And you're going to go out and you're going to try to do it again. And we're here because we're not, but we're here because we will be. That's what it means to gather under such Words. How beautiful are such words, yes? This is where then, verse 7, verse 4, with our actual text. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings the good news, who publishes peace. Along with Christians always being ready to print and publish stuff, publishing houses are why we have the Bible initially, really, the copyists way back when. Publishing the good news is important, but the, the image there that I want you to not miss is the beauty of the feet, which has to be a weird image. I mean, if you take what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, it means I got pretty feet. I, your pastor, got pretty feet. you got to admit it. The Bible says so. It's inspired without error. Deal with it, right? I got pretty feet. But it's not really what's going on. Right? What's going on is an allusion to another world that is hard for us to imagine. But imagine that we live in a small town and we're kind of alone and farmers and we got an army and a king and all this. But we're just kind of a city state here in Rockford. And we hear that Madison's coming down with their own army and they're pretty strong, got a lot of money tanks. They're going to kill us all, take our stuff. Dang it. That sounds bad. So we send out our army to fight Madison's army. And it's like that close. It's the ancient world, right? But it's far away. And we don't know. Who's coming over those hills next or down those streets next? We don't know if it's going to be the army of our enemies or the army of our friends. So when you see that first herald, that first messenger running over the hills, like at Marathon, do you remember the story of Marathon, how he ran and then died, and now we think we'll make races? I, I, I don't get it, guys. I, I don't get it. But, you know, the point of his running was we won. We won, right? And so you see him running over those hills, and he's jumping and shouting and waving his hands, and yes, yes, right? And from the city, the rejoicing goes up. Yes, indeed, his feet are beautiful. From far away indeed, but as they run over those mountains to publish to us our salvation, right? That's the idea that then, let me say it one more time. Uh, can you see how it comes to Christ? Can you see how beautiful his feet are pierced for our transgressions? And you see how it all ultimately is about him too at the end of the day. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings the good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The rest of the text is similar enough that I want to close with that bit. Say to Zion, your God reigns. 2020, COVID, it's not just COVID, Twitter, 
media, worldwide communications, royals, uh, the organization Davis in Sweden and its plans for 2030. We live in a very bizarre world right now. And we can argue and debate or talk or smoke cigars and chat about all of it. As long as all of it's kind of a story far away. And we live a story here that is more firm and real than those. There are people from far away who might send soldiers or tax collectors eventually or already. Okay, fine. We've had that forever. The real question is, how much are you going to start detaching your mind from the big story or five they're all trying to sell you so that you can have the peace of conscience more in your life that you find when you hear this story told similarly, historically, as it's always been told here. Publish the good news. It's here. Put it in your life. Open your mouth. Pray about it tonight. Say thank you, Jesus, at dinner. It doesn't matter how. Publish the good news. Your God reigns. You may feel like a drunken woman in the street. There's, there's one more part of the text I forgot about, um, and I, I will reference here, uh, which is this. When he says, I have set your oppressors against you and I've sent them away, Please know this, and this goes to anyone who's listening out there. If you're connected to churches in America that have shut down or are shrinking or are struggling or are having people leave in the last couple of years, 20 or 3, maybe God's doing that. Did you ever think that? Maybe God's shrinking American Christianity because it's idolatrous. Maybe all of our efforts to stop it are fighting God. And maybe as soon as we realize we're just a helpless beggar in the street, we'll see that things aren't as bad as we thought they were, that God's been with us all along, that he's ready to build right here for you. Well, that again, uh, life isn't so bad to begin with here in Rockford, people. And he is risen. Hallelujah. The comfort of Jesus. He is with us. He is with us. Let us pray.